All right, let me call your attention to the book of Jeremiah. I'll say a word of prayer and we'll get started. <clears throat> Father, we pray for our children that are learning the Bible tonight. We pray that their hearts would be soft, that there would be a deep imprint. Pray that their minds would grasp the truth. We pray that the Bible they learn would point them to Christ, that they would come to faith early, would love Christ, would grow up in a home that is nurturing and kind and a church that points them to grow strong. We pray the same for our students and for our own lives. Lord, we live lives that just beat us up. And so we pray that tonight we might be strengthened some by your word, by your presence, by fellowship with brothers and sisters. God, thank you for bringing people out in the cold. Thank you that you've given us um, such great facilities that you have provided, that it's warm in this building. We give you thanks for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Speaking of warm in this building, I'm a little too thankful. Is it anybody here hot? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, does anybody here know how to turn it down? Christina, would you tell somebody to turn the heat down a little bit? I appreciate that. Just text somebody, whoever gets the text. Oh, uh, there are lots of people here. Lots of people here. All right, let's talk about the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is 52 chapters, which sounds like it's shorter than other books because Isaiah is 66 chapters. And the Psalms, well, they feel like the chapters go on forever. Jeremiah, 52 chapters, fewer chapters than Isaiah, but longer. In fact, it's the longest one in the Old Testament. If you're reading through the Old Testament uh, and you're doing that uh, Bible reading plan, you're trying to follow along, you get to Jeremiah and uh, you can feel bogging down, wondering when is this ever going to be over. Jeremiah, if you had to... Um, this is the intro. Let me just talk a little bit about it. Um, it. It's hard to give an outline because it's a collection of speeches, prophecies, with some historical notes interspersed. Like there's no real story. Sometimes you're getting a prophecy or you're getting a speech. Jeremiah's giving it. And then you fall over into, well, here's some little context. And so it's really hard to outline. But let me try. I mean, let me try. You can just maybe put this over on the corner. A lot of different ways to outline Jeremiah. I'll give you just a brief outline. Chapter 1 is his call. The call of Jeremiah is chapter 1. You can see that. We'll get there in a minute and read it. Chapter 1 is the call. <clears throat> chapter 2 through chapter 29 is judgment on Judah. So chapter 1, God calls Jeremiah, chapter 2 through 29, it is Jeremiah delivering judgment. And the book of Jeremiah is filled with judgment. So chapter 2 to 29 is judgment on Israel. And then chapter 30 to chapter 33, that's where the sun starts to shine a little bit. From chapter 30 to chapter 33, you have the new covenant. You have this picture. That's where you, like as New Testament believers, as Christians, we would say there, there's the prophecy of Christ. There are a couple others, but chapter 30 to chapter 33 is the new covenant. And then chapter 34 to chapter 45, chapter 34 to chapter 45 is the fall of Judah. Had the judgment, it's going to happen. And then chapter 35 to chapter 45 
is the actual fall of Judah. And then from chapter 46 to chapter 51, that's judgment on all the nations. We don't really hear anymore out of Jeremiah. It's probably Baruch, his, his secretary, writing it. And then, then at the end, chapter 52 is the destruction of Jerusalem. And it's really telling it from 2 Kings. So you have this, this cycle, and Jeremiah is... Jeremiah lived 100 years after Isaiah. So Isaiah was there in the fall of the northern kingdom, and he preached in Judah... A hundred years later, so it's 2024, think 1924, the things you remember from 1924, not much. A hundred years later, afterwards, Jeremiah is going to, he's going to live through some of the darkest days. So we all know in the fall, the fall of Jerusalem, the temples burned down, the people are thrown into exile, Babylonian exile. Jeremiah is the preacher that says, this is going to happen. He lives through it happening and then speaks about it briefly afterward. He's like a war correspondent. He sees it all firsthand. Jeremiah does. When you read Jeremiah, what you're going to find is uh, that this is, this is, if you had to sum it up, <clears throat> it's still an introduction. God's message to his people and the nation of a coming judgment. What is Jeremiah? Jeremiah is God's message to his people and to the nation. It's not just the people of God. It's also the nation of a coming judgment. So what about Jeremiah? What do we know about Jeremiah? Well, we know that he was uh, the son of a priest, raised in a priest's home. He came up a preacher's kid. And you always hear everything about preacher's kids. They're the worst ones. They got bad from playing with the deacon's kids. That's how they got bad. <laughs> Amen. So uh, he came up as a preacher's kid. There is, some, there is some thought that he became a priest. We don't know if he did or not. Uh, he's the son of a priest. He might have become a priest. And if you read Jeremiah, if you want to look for a key verse, Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 3. I don't think I gave this to you, Christine. I'm adding this later. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 3 is probably a key verse. This is what he says. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth. You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refuse to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock, and they refuse to repent. If there's a word that runs through the, the book of Jeremiah, it's, it's the word repent. His ministry is nothing more than him talking to people about turning away from their wicked ways and turning to God. That's what the whole book of Jeremiah is about. What do we know about it? Well, he started his ministry. Uh, we'll get, get to Jeremiah 1 in a minute. He was 20 years old when he started as a prophet. So he starts preaching when he's 20 years old. He does it for 40 years. He gets, he gets kidnapped, taken down to Egypt, and he probably dies there. It's not a great way to go. He had 40 years of hard work, doesn't see much success. People aren't converted. He convinced one guy named Baruch to write his prophecies down. He's the, sort of the secretary for Jeremiah. 
he's not, not successful. Like we have a way of gauging success in the American church and it's wrong, but we do it anyway. You gauge, is that preacher successful? The way we gauge it, people are coming. That is big, it's growing or he's popular. And by any measure, Jeremiah is not successful. Nobody likes him. People don't gather to him. He's not well thought of, except that he's faithful to what God has told him to do. And he turns, he shows us to turn over. How do we measure success? You measure, are you faithful to what God has told you to do? All throughout the book of Jeremiah, you find explicit passages that I probably wouldn't even be comfortable uh, reading in here. I wouldn't be comfortable reading in church with their children. But in Jeremiah, you have all of these passages where God likens Israel as a bride that is married to him as the bridegroom, and that bride has become unfaithful. And the imagery is always about marriage and Israel, and he uses words like whoredom and is whoring herself. It's a terrible image of Israel's life coming off the tracks into adultery and God pursuing and her continuing to run. And that's when judgment comes. So it's really, it's a depressing book in, in a lot of ways to read. That's the introduction. Uh, let's talk about the date, when. Let's set it in its context. I always like to have a context. If you like numbers, you might say that Jeremiah was written between 627 B.C. and 582 B.C. 627, it's a good place to put it, about, and then 582 B.C. So we put it 100 years after Isaiah. It's, uh, it's, it's written several years after the northern kingdom has fallen. Uh, what's going on around Jeremiah's life, people called the Assyrians, they're the ones that came and got the northern kingdom. The Assyrians, they dominated that region for several hundred years, but the Assyrians were on, they were starting to slide. The Egyptians were starting to show up and, and the Babylonians were growing in power while that mix is going on. While the Assyrians and Babylonians and the Egyptians are fighting, that's when Israel looked like she might regain herself. You've heard of the king Josiah and Josiah's reforms. Josiah's reforms shone a little light on Israel. They're turning back to God, but his reforms never did come all the way. Isaiah is gone. Jeremiah is there preaching for Josiah, and they never happen. And because they don't happen, the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, will end up falling. So... Assyrians had the northern kingdom, took it away. The Babylonians, remember the Tower of Babel? These the same people, the Babylonians will rise. Josiah's reforms won't work. And Jeremiah is in the middle of preaching to people that will not listen. It's a, uh, it's a tumultuous, terrible time. It's a time when the people of God are fractured, when the nation is fractured. It's really... <clears throat> Honestly, truthfully, you can take Jeremiah and read it and it feel like Jeremiah is preaching to uh, the American Christian, the American church in some, in some ways, in some ways. 
Babylon is at its full strength. Uh, from chapter 1 to chapter 45, God will use Babylon to judge his people. Okay? When you read it, he is the one using this foreign country, Babylon, to judge his own people. That's chapter 1 to chapter 45. From chapter 46 to chapter 52, God then judges Babylon. It's, a, it's an amazing thing that reminds us that God does what he wants to do. These prophecies are dictated to us um, by a secretary named Baruch. We'll pick that up in a moment. It's difficult to get it, to, see, uh, to see Jeremiah as a cohesive unit. So I'd like to give a brief, a brief sketch. Let's just sort of see if we can walk through it together in a short time we have. <clears throat> Let's start in chapter 1. I'll bounce around a little bit. Join me there in chapter 1. He is called to be a prophet. We see his calling there in chapter 1. That is 627 B.C. If you want to put it somewhere in your Bible. In verse 6, the Lord said, Ah, then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. And the Lord said to me, Do not say that I'm only a youth, for to all whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. That is his calling. He's called to be a prophet. There in chapter 1, verse 6, you back up a little bit and you notice that it tells us how he served. He served more than 40 years. Started when he was 20 and uh, made it to retirement when he got 60 and then ended up dying. His retirement was he died. At least we think he did. We don't know what happened. He just sort of dropped off. We don't know what happened to Jeremiah. But chapter 1, let me read a little bit of, you, of it uh, to you. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anaoth, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days. So this is the date. This is how we know when. It came in the days of Josiah, the son of Amnon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the 11th year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. So this writer is telling us exactly when it happened. And if you do all the math on the names that he gave us there, it's 40 years, verses 2 and 3. When you read it from verses 4, 5, and 6, what this book teaches us is the absolute sovereignty of God. One of the most helpful things for me in my own Christian walk, it, one is when I get a hold of, of what grace is, I think through God's grace to me in Christ, <clears throat> I remember my own sin, my alienation. It helps me being, to not be judgmental on people. It helps me extend grace to other people. That's a very helpful, like when you get a full concept of grace and what it took to save you, it's very helpful in your own dealings with other people. The second thing that's been very helpful to me in my own personal growth as a, just as a Christian has been a growing uh, appreciation for the sovereignty of God. That means God is in absolute control at all times. 
This book tells us how God takes an evil nation, Babylon, uses it for his own purposes. When he's done there, he then does away with that nation. This teaches us the sovereignty of God. Let me show you where I might get that. Verse 4, 5, and 6. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb. God is talking about Jeremiah. This is the same sort of thing that happened with John the Baptist, left in the womb when, when Mary came in. This is a reminder, I'm going to put a pause here, why we are so, uh, so pro-life. Why do we hate abortion? Why, why do we stand against it? It's, it's not a, for us, it's not a political issue. It ends up being, because you have to vote on things, for us it's, it's Bible, it's, it's our view of life. This is how we, what we value. And you have pictures of that in the Old Testament and in the New as well. And so here, God is saying to Jeremiah, I knew you before you could conceive, you had thoughts. Before I formed you, before you grew as an embryo. So before you were conceived, I knew you in the womb. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Here's God with full, complete, and absolute control in the life of Jeremiah. He's already set him aside before Jeremiah would ever know it. I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. He tries to fight the sovereignty part. Verse 6, I said, Lord God, behold, I don't know how to speak. I'm only a youth. Let me pause here and say, we, we need to do all we can to cultivate young men and women. And I'm thinking about young men right now and their walk with God, and they're growing in, in Christ, and call into ministry. The first time I ever spoke to a congregation on any Sunday was in this room. 17 years old, we had a student event, and before we learned to not do that anymore, they let students talk. <laughs> and they let me talk. And it would be real easy for me to have, like it was terrible. There was a recording of it somewhere and it's gone. <laughs> that was really bad. And here is God saying to Jeremiah, don't blame your youth. Don't think it's just because you're young or you don't know something. It's incumbent on us to make sure that we are doing our investment, pouring into the students of our church to make them strong, to make them confident, to point them to Christ, to put up with some of the mistakes. God says to Jeremiah, Don't, do not say I'm only a youth, for to all whom I send you, you're going to go there and you're going to say what I tell you to say. This is a good reminder of the sovereignty of God. Let me show you something else. <clears throat> By the way, these are just, this is just a brief sketch. There are a hundred things you can find in Jeremiah. I'm just giving you a few of them. Here's a, here's a fourth one. Uh, Jeremiah is taught the, the, the power of the preached word. The power of the, like in this same room, this is where I learned the power of the preached word. I always wanted to be a preacher my whole life. Once I got saved, I all I ever wanted to be my whole life, either a stunt man or a preacher. That's all I ever wanted to be. <laughs> and they're very similar in a lot of ways. <clears throat> but I was a Presbyterian when I got saved. The bad kind of Presbyterian, liberal Presbyterians. Uh, never heard the gospel except in the Apostles' Creed. And they're real quiet. They're real quiet. 
I mean, the first time we came to Baptist church, we walked in this room and music and uh, the man stood up there and opened up the book and he, he preached so hard. And I remember thinking that right there. I don't know what Baptists believe, but that's what I want to do is be that kind of preacher. Jeremiah's going to learn the power of the preached word. Verse 7, let me show you where the Lord said to him, do not say I'm only a youth. For to all that I send you, you'll go. Whatever I command you, you will speak. Don't be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you. Not the people. They're going to be under judgment. You, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put his hand. And the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And he said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. Here's the Here's the power of God's word. It's good for us to get a hold of that. It's good, good for us to love the Bible to our students. Why do we use Awana? Because Awana is the best approach to get as much Bible inside of our children as quickly as possible. It's why our student pastors open the Bible, talk about the Bible. That's why we do exposition on Sunday. We'll read it and talk about what is the Because the, the power of a church is in the Bible. Who has the authority? When you think about our church, we're purely democratic. Nobody has the authority. The authority is in the preached word. That's where the authority comes from, not from an individual. It comes from what, did the, what does the Bible say? And here, Jeremiah's learning the lesson about the, 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 the power of the word, verses 7 through 10. Let me give you something else uh, about Jeremiah. I'll, there are two passages. I'll just go to one it's in chapter 26. His life would be hard. It's a hard ministry. God called him to, he'll be dropped in a cistern. He'll bury his underwear. He'll be beaten and mocked. He'll, be, he'll break uh, pots. He's going to be, I mean, Isaiah, well, he walked around three years for naked. naked. He, so that, the prophets had it bad. But even in his hometown, and two temple sermons, are called temple sermons, Chapter 26, um, I'd like just to read a little bit. <clears throat> Chapter 26. In the beginning of the reign of Je Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand in the court of the Lord's house. Speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord. All the words that I command you to speak to them, do not hold back a word. It may be that they'll listen. And everyone turn from his evil way that I may relent from the disaster that I intend to do to them because of their evil deeds. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, if you'll not listen to me, walk by my law that I have set before you and listen to the words of my servants, the prophets whom I send to you urgently, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh. I will make this city a curse for all the nations of the earth. The priests and the prophets and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words in the house of the Lord. And when Jeremiah had finished speaking all that the Lord had commanded him to speak to all the people, then the priests and the prophets and all the people laid hold of him. And they said, you shall die. Why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying, This house shall be like Shiloh, 
This city shall be desolate without inhabitant. And all the people gathered around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. When the officials of Judah heard these things, they came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord. They took their seat in the entry of the new gate, the house of the Lord. Then the priest and the prophets said to the officials and to all the people, This man deserves the sentence of death because he has prophesied against the city. And you've heard it with your own ears. That's the kind of ridicule. That's the kind of punishment that Jeremiah would, would have his entire life ministry. Start young at 20, he would die young at 60, and it would be miserable the whole time. He, he would learn that it's hard, that the ministry God had given him was hard, that people plotted against him. There was a, a hometown plot, you might call it, in chapter 11. I'll show it to you. Chapter 11, verse 18. <clears throat> Chapter 11, verse 18. The Lord made it known to me, and I knew. Then you showed me their deeds. But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know that it was against me they devised schemes, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let's cut him off from the land of the living that his name shall be remembered no more. But, O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. You keep reading. It's, it's his own people. The own people that are trying to hurt him. You, you find out sometimes who's with you and who's against you. And, and here, Jeremiah, the sketch of his life is ministry was hard. He had the word of the Lord. God had given it to him. He knows what he's called to do. He will not be successful. He'll die pretty young. Verse seven, chapter 7, I'm sorry, number 7. He can't even get married. God kept, chapter 16, let me show it to you. God kept him from marrying. Chapter 16, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. I'm preaching this Sunday, uh, Mark chapter 2. 10 verses 1 through 12 it is the passage on divorce when the Pharisees uh, try to trap Jesus and they say is it lawful for a man to divorce and really they're not asking about, about the law they're trying to entrap him to get him to say something that's going to have Herod Antipas remember he cut John the Baptist's head off because John the Baptist was preaching he shouldn't be married to his brother's wife they're trying to trick him. And, and Jesus takes that moment to teach on marriage. Now, he speaks to divorce, but he also speaks so positively and so strongly about the goodness of marriage, how God created him, Adam and Eve, how he brought the two together, how Adam and Eve was the first marriage, what God has brought together, no man puts asunder. In that passage, you have Jesus talking about gender. There's a whole lot you can get out of that passage besides his hatred of divorce. But, but what you do find is this beautiful picture. Marriage is good. It's a good thing. You should be married. And then you get here. Why wouldn't God give Jeremiah? I mean, he's got these terrible things happening. Everybody in town hates him. His ministry is terrible. He's got no success. He's being faithful. He's going to be hauled off to Egypt by the end of his life. And chapter 16, <clears throat> it just doesn't, it doesn't seem to make sense. 
the word of the Lord came to me, you shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place and concerning the mothers who bore them and the fathers who fathered them in this land, they shall die of deadly diseases. They shall not be lamented. They shall not be buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. They shall perish at the sword and by famine, and their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. It feels like punishment until you... Jeremiah is told why. Like we're not, oftentimes we're not told why, why we aren't allowed or why something has to happen or, 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 or why you can't have children. You're not told why. Jeremiah had the, Jeremiah had the, the, he had the luxury of knowing that there's always something good behind what God does. When he instructs, when he prohibits, when he withholds, he does so because he's good, even if we can't see it. We can't see it. God kept him from, from getting married. There is a Jesus moment in, before you get to chapter 30, I'll just point out one, one Jesus moment. Chapter 23, verse 8. <clears throat> There's a picture of... Jeremiah 23, verse 6. In his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which... He will be called the Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. It, it's not you be righteous. It is a reminder we are not. He is our righteousness. Okay, I was off the track a little bit. I found it. When you give it to you, let's go to number eight. Number eight is we're going through this sketch. Uh, I've alluded to it a couple of times. Well, see if I can point it out in Jeremiah 43. He probably died in Egypt. That's when we really kind of hear the last of Jeremiah. The book goes on because Baruch writes it all. So he, Baruch is the amanuensis. He's the scribe. He has all the information. He's heard every, everything Jeremiah says. He lays it out and writes it. It's why the book of Jeremiah doesn't move chronologically. Like it's hard to track when you're reading it. So we see it in verse, verses 1 through 7 or so of chapter 43. When Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people, all these words of the Lord their God, with which the Lord their God had sent to them, Azariah the son of Hoshiah, and Johanan the son of Kareah, and all the insolent men said to Jeremiah, You are telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say, do not go down to Egypt to live there. But Baruch, the son of Neriah, has set you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans, that they may kill us or take us into exile into Babylon. So Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces and all the people did not obey the voice of the Lord to remain in the land of Judah. But Johanna and all the commanders of the forces took all the remnant of Judah who had returned to live in the land of Judah from all the nations to which they had been driven, the men, the women, the children, the princes, and every person whom 
Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah and the son of Ahakim, son of Shaphan, also Jeremiah the prophet, and Baruch the son of Neriah. They came into the land of Egypt. They did not obey the voice of the Lord, and they arrived there. That's all we're going to find. He goes to Egypt. After chapter 43, we, we don't know what happened to it. Probably died in Egypt. Baruch is his secretary. You find that in chapter 36. He didn't, leave to, he didn't live to see the destruction of Jerusalem. He saw the deportation, the Babylonian exile. He didn't live, live to see the destruction uh, I'm sorry, the destruction of Babylon. He didn't see the destruction of Babylon. Okay. What are the themes? Like as a Christian, what do we learn when we read Jeremiah? What are some things that, okay, it's Wednesday night, I'm going home, I got to work the rest of the week, it's going to be cold. What are things I learned to help me this week? Let me give you a couple of things in Jeremiah. Here's the first one. It's in chapter 10. <clears throat> Number one, God alone is the living God and the creator. That's what this whole book is about, is people have been unfaithful to God, and now the prophecies are against God's people. Chapter 10 tells us, <clears throat> I'll start in verse 1 and read a little bit of it. Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord. Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down, worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. They cannot speak. They have to be carried. They cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them. For they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great. Your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones in the nations and all their kingdoms, there is none like you. That, that's the message of Jeremiah. Why would you worship that what somebody made? Why wouldn't you turn back to the God of all. And this whole book is about our God, He alone. He alone is the creator. He alone is the one worthy of your worship. All of us have something that could turn into an idol. An idol takes your time, attention, resources away from God. And Jeremiah reminds us that God alone is the living God and creator. What else? Let me give you a second thing that you might find as a theme in Jeremiah, God called Israel into a special relationship that sin has broken. Okay, we are his creation. God called you, created you to be in a special relationship with God. But our sin has broken that relationship. Let me show you where I get this. Chapter 2. <clears throat> Chapter 2, verse 13. My people have committed two evils. 
They have forsaken me, the fountain of the living waters. They have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Two evils. Man, doesn't that sound like what we do? My people have done two things wrong. The first thing they did, they have forsaken me, the living water. Isn't that what Jesus says, come to me, drink? If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me from his inmost being shall flow rivers of living water. That's what Christ says. Why would you not come and find your satisfaction and nourishment there? There's one thing you do wrong. You don't come to me for nourishment. The second thing you do is that you try to create a cistern. You know what that is? It's, what, it's like a well. It'll hold the water. So you're not coming to get fresh water from me. What you're doing, you create, you're, you're making up stuff. You're going over here to, to drink out of this poison cistern that doesn't hold the water. I mean, it's, that's, as, that's as relevant as this very moment. You can, you right now know people who claim to be Christian and yet are not being nourished on the goodness of God found in Christ. They're not coming to Christ for the nourishment and they're creating their own, creating their own. They're eating rottenness that they're creating. That's a theme you find that runs through Jeremiah. I'll give you a third one. <clears throat> third one, false gospels. False gospels do not Heal a false gospel. Chapter 6, verse 13. There are false gospels out there. I don't mean just cults. Did, uh, has Kyler taught cults here yet? He is. Okay. I don't mean just cults. When I, I mean, when I say a false gospel, I think that there are churches that would call themselves Christians, maybe evangelical, and yet don't give the whole council the gospel of God. And you get enough of the gospel that you get, a, get inoculated from actually getting the real gospel. There's a false gospel out there. Uh, chapter 6, verse 13. For from the, least of, from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. Here comes the false gospel. They have healed the wound of my people lightly. They have said, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They told you it's, everything's fine, you're going to be fine, when it's not. When, when, the, when your femoral artery has been cut and you've put a Band-Aid on it, it's not working. Oh, I'll keep reading. <clears throat> were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. What a terrible thing. You ought to underline, if you have your Bible, underline that. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at the time that I punish men. They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. The way we escape judgment is learning how to blush. It's what Jeremiah is hearing. What the people couldn't do is actually recognize what they're doing is sinful. Remember, what they're accused of by God is this spiritual ad adultery. That's the theme that runs through Jeremiah. God accuses them of, a, of an adultery, of, of stepping out on your marriage vows and having sex with someone else. He even goes so far as to call that, call that whoring. It's a, an abomination, and they ought to be blushing over it. They ought to be red in the face and embarrassed and ashamed, and they're not. And so they're lost. But the reverse of that is also true. When we do, I mean, this is why we're saved. It's why you're a Christian. 
Because you realize that your own sin, your filthiness before God. And so what do you do? You look to the righteousness of Christ. You look to what Christ has done. You look to the cross. That's Christianity. You look to the cross and you say, I claim the righteousness of Jesus, not my own. That's what saves us. Embarrassment or shame is the very first step. That's not where we stay. We don't stay in shame. Shame drives us to Christ, you see. There's a false gospel that doesn't ever get you to see sin. If you can't get to see sin, you don't see the need for it. Salvation. If you can't see the filth, you don't see the need to get clean. And Jeremiah gives us this word. There are preachers saying peace, peace, when there's not any peace. False gospels are easier to preach. They do not heal. False gospels are, false gospels are, are much more palatable. They're better when you bring visitors, they might come back if you preach a false gospel, but they won't be healed even if they do come back. Okay, I, I could say they ever lose. Just keep going. Just keep going. Number four, God, God rules the present. God rules the right now. I saw that in chapter one, verses four and following, when God calls Jeremiah and he tells him the word he's going to give him and what's going to happen. It's not going to be fun. It'll be hard, but I'm going to be with you. See if I can just point out a couple of those things. Chapter 1. Let me call your attention. Yeah, uh, from verse 11 down to about verse 16 or so. That shows us that God rules the present. The word of the Lord came to me, said, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. Almond branch is pictured, picturing the word of God. The word of the Lord came to me a second time and said, what do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. Babylon's in the north, facing now toward Judah. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north, disaster will be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord, they shall come, everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls, all around and against the cities of Judah. And I will declare my judgment against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshiped their works of their own hands. Pause. That is, that is Jeremiah preaching. This is happening. God is in control. It is a terrible disaster, and yet God rules in the present. It, it, that's, a, that's an axiom to get in your heart and mind. When things are good or bad, when panic hits, when somebody's dying, God rules in the present. If that's the case and you're his child, he is with you. I mean, we don't just have this cold belief in God's sovereignty. Okay, well, God is in control, sits on his throne. Yes. What good is that doing you? What good is that doing you? The good is that you are his child and he is working all things together for the good of those that love him. Don't just leave sovereignty over in some cold area that says, oh, yep, you know it is in control. That's true, but, but, but sovereignty has a warmth to it. It has a confidence to it. That, that gives us backbone, gives us direction, gives us peace. Okay, let me keep going. God rules in the present. God rules in the future. 
chapter 29. Let's go to everybody's favorite, Jeremiah 29, 11. Everybody's favorite verse that is always misapplied. Y'all know the favorite verse, right? Jeremiah 29, 11. Can somebody quote it? A future and a hope. Absolutely. The people are in exile. They're going to be there 70 years. They are part of the redemptive plan of God. Remember creation, fall, redemption. Creation, Genesis, you have the laws. You see the fall and then all of that is coming up to redemption. And we get to the prophets and we're finally seeing there's going to be some redemption. But exile is part of the judgment, but judgment's not always the end word of God. There's hope there, 29-11. Don't misapply 29-11 that, okay, you had a bad day, but it's going to get better, and he's going to make sure the sun comes out, and your house will be warm, and your, your pipes won't burst when it freezes. That may not be the truth. Look further. What is that, what is that, what is that word from God about redemption, you see? That's, that's verse 11. Verses 1 through 10 tells us that God rules the future. Let me read that. Starting in verse 4. Let's go down to verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles. Remember, this is to the exiles. 29-11, to an exile. To all the exiles from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, live in them. Plant gardens, eat the produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters into marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. In other words, live your life. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. And in its welfare, you'll find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your uh, diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams they dream. For it's a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, 70 years are completed for Babylon. I will visit you 70 years. I pause there. 70 years from now. 70 years from now will be, what, 2094? Did I have that right? Yeah. There are not many of us going to be there. What good does that do you? Don't take Jeremiah 29, 11 and apply it to something for tomorrow. In its context, it looks toward the goodness that God gives in redemptive history in Christ. 70 years I will fulfill to you my promise. I will bring you back to this place. Bringing back is the cycle. God's people get in terrible trouble. They're in Egypt. God hears their cry. He goes and saves them. Comes into the promised land. They get into trouble. They go into exile. They're judged. He hears their cry, saves them. It's the picture of the gospel. Verse 11 is the gospel. For I know, my, I know the plans that I have for you. The plans of the gospel declares the Lord, plans welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. God rules the future. God protects, I'm going to give you another thing. Another theme. God protects his chosen people. 
Fly back to chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 17, 18, and 19. God protects his chosen people. But you, you dress yourself for work, arise, say to them, everything that I command you, do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. And I, behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, its people of the land. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. He's telling that to Jeremiah as God's called him to do this terrible work that's not going to be successful, but God is, is with you. What a great comfort that is. When you are his chosen person, as a Christian you are, if you're in Christ, Christ the chosen one, right? If you are in Christ, you share that protection. Let me give you a seventh, a seventh theme. God saves those who turn to him. This is why I preach the gospel every Sunday. Why do we share the gospel? Because God will save those who turn. Verse 14, 15, and 16 of chapter 12. Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I'll pluck them from up from their land. I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. And after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them. I will bring them again, each to his heritage, each to his land. And it shall come to pass if they will diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. But if any nation will not listen, I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. God saves those, even those that maybe shouldn't be there. God saves those who will turn to him. Let me give you an eighth one. This is why you don't give your heart to Jesus. Chapter 17. Let me tell you why. Chapter 17. The human heart is sick. Only God can cure it. The human heart is sick. Ezekiel says God will give a new heart. That's conversion. Chapter 17, verses 9 and 10. This is why you don't tell people to trust their hearts. Follow your heart. Don't follow your heart. Why? Chapter 17, 9 and 10. The heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give, to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. What are our ways? The wages of our deeds, the wages of sin is death. What we deserve is something terrible. He looks at our heart and it's terrible. You can't trust the human heart. It's sick. Only God that's what conversion is. It's not, hey, come clean up my heart. It's a new, it's a new heart. The, the drama of conversion is taking an old sick heart out as a transplant and putting a new heart in. Okay, that's not enough of the image. Go to chapter 18. It's the, it's maybe my favorite in Jeremiah. Chapter 18 is God as the, as the potter. Don't you love this? Let me just read it to you. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord said, Arise, go down to the potter's house. There I will let you hear my words. 
So I went down to the potter's house and there he was working on his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. And then the word of the Lord came to me and said, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter has done, declares the Lord. Like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck it up, break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do. The, the beautiful imagery of God shaping his people. It's good for you to remember clay in the potter's hand. I'll give you one last one. We'll call it a night. <clears throat> There's a theme that runs through Jeremiah. It's right in the middle of the book, chapter 31, and that is a new covenant is coming. This is what we'll preach Sunday, a new covenant in Christ. Sunday when I preach from Mark chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 12, and I deal with the issue of divorce and all of the hard things that Jesus says about divorce, what I'll preach it under the umbrella of the new covenant coming, the picture of the gospel of grace. A new covenant is coming. That covenant is hated by Satan. Chapter 31, verse 15. Hated by Satan. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Hundreds of years before something happened. Matthew chapter 2. When Herod heard that Christ had been born, slaughtered all the children, males in Bethlehem. You remember that story? It's prophesied here, Jeremiah. It's a reminder. It's a picture also of what we see in Revelation when, when the dragon seeks to take the, the woman's child. It's the imagery. It's Satan always seeking to destroy. What happened with, with Cain and Abel? What happened there? Satan seeking to destroy. So there is a new covenant coming. Satan hates the gospel. He'll do all he can to prevent the gospel, hates the gospel. But that new covenant is fulfilled in Christ. What a, let's close with these verses. We'll be done. Chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, not the no covenant with Noah, Abraham, not those covenants. Not like the one I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, and they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, not external, in. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. There's the hope right in the middle of Jeremiah 
that a new covenant is coming. And as Christians, we see that new covenant in Christ, whose perfect life, atoning death, glorious resurrection gives us hope for a brand new day. All that right there in the book of Jeremiah. Thank you for listening. Doing a great job. Let me close in a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your word where we see the gospel through and through. Thank you for the pattern that shows us you pursue, you punish sin, you forgive because of Christ and the new covenant. Lord, I pray you protect us this week as it comes to a close in the next few days. Pray that you give us sunshine and a way to get here Sunday to worship with your people. I pray that in the days ahead you wake us up in enough time to spend time with you, that you bring us back on Sunday with our hearts ready to lift up the name of Christ. Pray that Christ is honored in our homes and will be honored here at our church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.